You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. We need to have heat. It's, it's such a fundamental thing. As you start to look at making IoT accessible and understandable at scale to an audience, Heating was perhaps not by design. I don't know if we if we necessarily knew where we would end up as an organization when we first started, but it has proven to be one of those spaces that has enabled age ranges of customers, you know, from people in their twenties to people who are in their eighties and nineties living with this technology to get into a smarter world. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex. That was Ashton Snook, head of product design at Hive. And he was talking there about some of the expectations and the experiences which are shaping this domain of customer experience that he now finds himself working in. So Ashton is my guest on today's show. Uh, It turned out to be a a really great conversation, I think, on a number of levels, both in terms of the multi-touchpoint nature of these experiences that he's building at Hive, uh, but also in what it's meant for design culture in what's quite a, a big organization. So I'll tell you a bit more about Ashton and Hive before we get into it. But I also wanted to tell you a bit about how a conversation like this actually happens. So I was talking with someone the other day who listens to the show, and they were asking me and, and saying, yeah, how do you meet all of these different people who come on to talk about their careers and, and their design interests? Because I've been pretty lucky with the Mex podcast. I mean, if I look back through the 70 or so episodes that we've recorded, like there's a lot of diversity there, different industries, different job roles, different career stages, different backgrounds and cultures and countries. And that's certainly always the ambition. You know, one of the things I love most about doing this podcast is the opportunity to talk with people who I might not otherwise have encountered. So anyway, to find out how Ashton came to be on the podcast, we actually have to wind the clock back 16 years. So 16 years ago, I was organizing this conference called the World Handset Forum in San Diego with Informa, which is this big events company which did lots of tech conferences. So yeah, this is 2004, pre-iPhone, the early days of smartphones. And as part of this, I was working with a design agency called Alloy to put together four smartphone concepts which we would showcase to the industry. It was kind of a a challenge to what was back then a very tech-focused, engineering-led mobile telecoms business. And what we wanted to say was, look, this is what your your future products could look like if you adopt a user-centered approach to their creation. What we did with the project was to take that concept of user-centeredness to a bit of an extreme. So we did a, a phase one of user research to identify some of the broader groups that we thought were underserved by current mobile products. And then we use that to narrow down to micro segments and eventually for very different individuals who we worked with to co-create their ideal phones of the future. It was a pretty interesting project and Alloy did a wonderful job of bringing these concepts to life and producing physical prototypes. And the whole thing ended up causing a bit of a stir in the early smartphone world and got covered by people like Wired Magazine. Now, one of the guys working on the Alloy team was a designer called Matt Plested, 
who went on to work for Alloy for a long time, and then companies like Dyson. And now if you flash forward to 2019, and Matt has launched his own design agency called The Fuel. Uh, And I was talking to him about that and whether he might come on the show in the future, which I very much hope is still going to happen. And in the meantime, Matt says, well, one of the companies that he's been working with is Hive. And there's this guy there, Ashton Snook, uh, heading product design, who he really thinks would make a great guest on the podcast. And would I like an intro? So while not everyone who comes on the show starts with a conversation from 16 years ago, uh, suffice to say that I am constantly being surprised and delighted by just how many people have been involved with mechs over the years turn out to be listening to the podcast and then how their recommendations and introductions are leading to great new conversations with people today. So Ashton himself has had a a pretty interesting path. Uh, He spent some time agency side, but he's also worked in-house on the digital side for big retail brands like Tesco and ASOS and Farfetch before he then came into Hive in what started more as a, a practitioner product design role. Now, Hive, if you're in the UK, is probably something you know for its smart thermostat and smart heating systems. Uh, It's the same sort of space that the likes of of Nest um, might be more familiar to to those of you listening in the US. Uh, Although, as Ashton talks about, it's now become much more than that at, at Hive. So we talk quite a bit about both Hive's product experience and how that's evolving into this, this multi-touchpoint, multi-sensory design challenge for him, uh, as well as how his own role has developed from one which was more focused on executing design deliverables to, to one which is expanding into how design culture can really benefit the, the wider organization at Hive. It was a conversation I really enjoyed, um, partly, I think, because it illuminates an area around how technology can be both pervasive and in keeping with the needs of its users, but also because of the open and the fresh way that Ashton was up for sharing his journey. Um, now, I'll be back at the end, but for now, here's my chat with Ashton Snook, Head of Product Design at Hive. <music> think back to training as a designer do you think the training that you did then prepares you for the work that you're doing now i think for me in some ways i mean i started out doing a mixed mixed course when i was at college i was doing film and photography and graphics and i didn't expect myself to figure out a, a journey necessarily beyond that i mean i was really interested in going to film um initially and then i realized how complex the industry was to get into and then built into the graphic space as I went in to do graphic design at uni, what I was really interested in is trying to figure out how I could get into, into digital product. But the course wasn't really set up for that. It was really focused on the more traditional elements. So it's a lot of typesetting, a lot of color theory. And those elements certainly helped me early on building into the digital space and getting onto the idea of designing for you know, UI and UX um, and ultimately becoming um, a product designer and then moving into a leadership role later. Yes and no. So there were some sort of basics that I've transferred over the years But I think a lot of that has been, well, probably from an intellectual perspective. So the idea to be able to step back, understand connotation, to look at the psychology of the end user, that has transferred. Um, But the technical skills, the ability to understand how interaction design um, needs to unfold in reality and how you go around learning and developing those experiences, I think kind of came out in industry as I was going into 
work in startups and then into agency before going in, in, in-house at product companies. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because I guess it's it's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things that you were doing that training. And yet it sounds like, you know, at least with the work that you're doing now, because the area itself is quite new uh, as a an area of product that, you know, actually quite a bit has has changed. So, so I suppose there's a, a challenge of sort of sorting those core principles that you're being trained from the things which are specific to the technologies that you now find yourself working on around the, the smart home stuff. Or- yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting. I think when I was looking back, I mean, maybe it's the wrong course I chose. Uh, there was design seemed to make sense to me. Uh, there are some, some great foundations that transferred from that. The only thing that I can recall at the time, there was maybe like an interaction design, but that's purely for game or um, HEI, which for me felt, you know, may, maybe a little bit on the spectrum of being overly academic. I mean, as a, as, I don't want to use the word creative, but, you know, I've, I've grown up with dyslexia, like a lot of designers and something about the idea of moving into something that felt much more scientific and computer orientated seemed complex for the way that my brain's wired. So starting with that graphic design space and building on top of the idea of understanding visuals, positioning, typography, um, semiotics, all of those elements, um, was it was a good place. But um, I'm hope I'm hopeful now, and as I start to speak to people in university, and I start to speak to peers who are running teams and then going in to help the next generation, it feels like we've we've quickly in the last couple of years started to gear up in some in some shape or form how colleges and how universities are helping to prepare for. The next generation, which is what we've been living for the last 10 or 15 years, which is now we're actually going to train people on how to design, you know, under user centered experiences with the customer in mind and how we think about interaction products, as opposed to what I experienced when I was, was, I was training, which was still very much print. I mean, how are you finding that now, now that you're in the, the situation of going back and talking to universities and talking to people who are, are training themselves? Have you been able to identify some of the things which at least for you with the kind of team that you're running now are the important hallmarks of the kind of people that you'd like to see graduating so that they were best qualified to come into the kind of work that you're doing i i suppose what we're probably looking for is that sense of understanding like when you, when you meet a designer and, and a, there's you know with any discipline there are in our world designers and then there are the designers right so people kind of coast through that and think it's going to be something that's around color and you know maybe it's an easy way to ride through college or the people who are maybe the top 20 percent who i think then go into industry and make a real difference are as with anything anyone who's going to break the mold a little bit people who are super passionate about what they're doing have a real interest in all the details you know that might be from a strategic perspective that might be from um a real pixel pushing perspective um but i think it's that you know that those characteristics of people who are willing to push themselves and are really interested in changing something which i think in a design space is often driven by that sense of frustration and i think it's that ability you see in you know young designers when they go you know what i, I this is something that i'm super passionate about because i find it so annoying i'm going to commit myself to trying to build into that um, and you start to see that transfer into into something um, and you can see how and where they might start to shape out when they move into industry. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. That I mean, one of the things I guess I've learned a bit from doing these podcasts over the last few years is that that, that problem-solving motivation you, you allude to there, I think, is 
quite a core characteristic for a lot of people who then find themselves working as designers in later life, even if they take a, a bit of a different path to get there. Some of them don't even end up studying you know, a design discipline per se at university, but always there seems to be that core motivation of, I can identify a problem out there or something which could be made more efficient or better in some way and a desire to, to want to solve it. I mean, if, if you go back even further for you personally, can you pinpoint a particular moment when you were growing up where you felt like it was the first time you sort of did something creative in that way or, or problem solving in that way where you felt that that sense of, I guess at that age, you know, you probably don't think of it necessarily as being a designer or having designed a thing, but just that you have, have sold something or, or improved something. I think I found myself kind of doing, you know, what I would now look at as design was mostly art. And it was, it was from that point of view when I was at school, um, you know, because I mentioned it earlier on, we, I, you know, I have suffered is probably in the right word, but I have dyslexia. So when I was young, that wasn't very well understood. Um, and I felt somewhat incompetent when we were looking at things like English literature. Actually, mathematics was also a challenge when I was quite young. Um, and so I led into the arts. And so I was really interested from a young age in painting and uh, making models and, and playing with ideas because it was something that I felt kind of comfortable with and I could express what I was doing. I think one of the earlier memories I have of when I was trying to solve a problem. And strangely, it somewhat landed where I am sort of 20 plus years later in um, in my current company at Hive. As I remember being inspired by something I saw on, I can't remember the name of the film, but it was an, it was an, a, an 80s film, probably like launched or released in like 84, 85, where a son and a father uh, change bodies. And this kid goes goes kind of nuts and enjoys all the sort of experiences of being an adult and goes into this giant shopping mall and goes on this giant, a keyboard that he can run up and down and it plays music, but he's using his legs to interact with it. And at that point, I remember thinking, you know, it'd be quite cool if you, if we could have, when you came home, that you come in and you stand on maybe like the doormat and that doormat turns on the lights and maybe it plays music. Um, and I said, that's like, you know, probably 20 plus years ago. And I was thinking it's, it's not that nice when I come in the front door <laughs> with like after school with my siblings when we get home. Wouldn't it be nice when it's like 4 p.m. if the lights came on when, it, when we walked the door and maybe the radio switched on? And that was, for, you know, it was, I don't know, I was, I was less than 10 when I was thinking about that, that idea. So I think at that in point a way, thought, you're, you're almost predestined to end up somewhere like Hive by the sound of it from a, a very young age if uh, you were thinking about this home automation stuff even back then. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I didn't think about this until I was having having a conversation with um, some colleagues of mine probably about six months ago. And they were, we were discussing, you know, how do we get into design? What, what inspired us? All of us have come from very different backgrounds um, over the years. Some of us did design, some of us did music, some of us were in tech. Uh, you know, a few of the team never went to university at all. And this memory came up and I thought, this is, you know, I've always landed. Maybe that's why I love doing what I do right now, because it's something as, as a kid, I was dreaming about creating and, and making better for people. So yeah, let's, let's talk about that a bit because I'm conscious that I guess for most people who live in the UK at least, Hive is probably going to be something that they're familiar with. Um, but we've got quite a few listeners who aren't in the UK where maybe Hive, the level of awareness uh, isn't as, as great. But how would you describe uh, Hive to someone who wasn't already familiar with it? We've got a pretty clear definition of where we're going. The, the path we've set out in front of us is to create smarter homes for a better world. And if we break that down, it's about taking the technologies and the understanding of how people are living and trying to find those opportunities in which we can augment and use tech to make it better. So that might be for one one household, 
it might be all around heating that sense of comfort it might be for another household i want to make a clear difference i feel better if i'm if i feel like i can save energy and therefore helping commit you know contribute towards that carbon neutral space it might be for another household that they simply don't want to have to get up when they're relaxing in the evening to change the lights um, and for others you know people who are suffering mobility issues it's just not a feasible or a very accessible thing to have to get up and, and, and hit the light switch. So really what we're trying to do is use technologies and services that we have within our company and our group to make the home better and better in a way that makes sense for you and your family. You know, to that end, we've, we started off and what we're probably most famous for was developing a really great heating solution with Hive Active Heating, which is our smart thermostat. And then as we started to understand the profile of the house the makeup of the customers, the various needs of those customers, we started to expand that portfolio to include things like cameras for a sense of security, uh, motion sensors and contact sensors, which are really enablers to start to automate the home whilst recognizing, you know, not everybody wants that and still laying on that element of control. So for us, we're on this mission to create a smarter home for a better world, but interpreting that better world to, to what the needs are of, of the individual, as well as, you know, the trends and the desires that we can see uh, at a larger sort of societal level. Where did all this come from as a, a company? You know, what was the origin story for Hive? So we, we were originally started in British Gas, which is, I think, the UK's and still still UK's largest energy supplier. It was interpreted that at the time, there needs to be a gear change in how people were consuming and using energy. Domestic energy consumption contributes a huge percentage of the overall carbon footprint of the UK and actually globally. And BG realized that they needed to um, invest in a technology, not just from a service or an energy provider level, but in a technology that could help change the paradigms and improve the experience, save money for the customer, uh, and build towards you know this idea of reducing waste um, and carbon emissions. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting, I suppose, that you the the origin of the company at least lies in in the area around energy consumption and, and heating in particular. I mean, at least if I think about myself and the role that, that heating and, and the boiler, if you like, plays within the home. There is something a bit emotive about that. You know, it's quite an interesting sort of entry point for, for the brand to be coming from there, as opposed to, say, coming from being a supplier of routers or a supplier initially of security cameras. Uh, although it sounds like the business you know, then has expanded into some of those areas, that, that start point was around heating and comfort and energy consumption. I mean, do you find that when you're approaching the research with customers that you get a sense that that is a difference in their mind, that they perceive the brand in a certain way because of that? Absolutely. The thermostat, I would say, is definitely still our leading product, both from a catchy perspective and awareness. I mean, the great thing about heating is that it, it really is a multi-sensory experience, right? You have literally the sensation of the heat coming up and down, which affects how you feel in your home, which changes your mood and your attitude. You have the other elements, which is I want to be more efficient and I want to reduce my carbon footprint. Um, and then you have this sense of um, of I want to save a bit of money as well, which you know the, the firms that helps contribute towards all those elements. Um, and for that reason, and you know, the other thing with heating as well, it is it's a core need, right, in a house. And any building that we live in and, and spend time in, we need to have heat. It's, it's such a fundamental thing. As you start to look at making IoT accessible and understandable at scale to an audience, heating was perhaps not by design. I don't know if we, if we necessarily knew where we would end up as an organization when we first started, but it has proven to be 
one of those spaces that has enabled age ranges of customers, you know, from people in their 20s to people who are in their 80s and 90s living with this technology to get into a smarter world, this smarter home. So yes, it's it's been a, it's been a great gateway to help try and change that narrative. I mean, IoT is still very new to a lot of consumers, and I, I, we we meet with people constantly, and when they realise they can control their heating from the phone, which for us has felt like a you know at least a five plus year journey or something we've we've been doing for a long time, it still feels quite radical and refreshing and exciting for a lot of customers um, or prospective customers. I'm intrigued by that because as we talked a little bit about, I guess at the start, some of these things are devices services, possibilities, which didn't exist until relatively recently. And I wonder what you find in that regard when you look at the the kind of research that's coming in from users and, and customers about that language that they use around it and whether most people see this as being, you know, I'm buying something that is smart home or I'm buying something that is IoT or whether they just see this as the next generation of the things that they're already familiar with, the thermostat, the boiler, that sort of thing. And whether any of that actually matters or, or in, informs how you might go about designing for that. I mean, do you pay much attention to the, the language that the customers themselves are using to describe these things? Language is hugely revealing. I would say, you know, to try and answer those, those kind of categories, IoT I think is a very niche niche terminology that is probably well understood in products, well understood in within the tech community as, as a concept, but for the consumer, not so much. Smart home is a little bit better. People start to get the sense of, okay, it's making things work. The reality is a lot of customers, a lot of um, the public aren't particularly interested in or don't have the knowledge about Wi-Fi protocols, Bluetooth connectivity. You know, it comes down to that common language and it comes to the point of it's, it's probably for most people the next generation of things they're familiar with. We've been dreaming about a smart home since the mid-Victorian period, at least, you know, probably a lot longer as a society. Um, we started to see that take shape in the 20th century. And in the last few years, it started to get to a price point where people can afford to retrofit it to their houses. You know, roll back 20 years ago, you could have a relatively smart home, not from your phone, of course, but you could have a relatively smart home. You'd have to spend several thousands, tens of thousands to integrate it. I think it's just a, it's a natural progression. You know, uh, smart smartphones themselves over the last 10, 15 years have, have really changed the, the shape of how we consume content in every industry, created numbers of new industries. How does it compare versus the roles that you were in before Hive? So I know you spent time with uh, ASOS and Tesco and, and Farfetch, which I'm guessing that there are some similarities, but also they're in rather different categories. I think one of the comparisons that we can make certainly with someone like Tesco as a brand or ASOS is the huge spectrum of customers. I think from an external perspective, there are assumptions we can make as professionals about who the demographics might be and how people might understand given technologies or given services or different brands. But the reality is, you know, if you look at something like Tesco or ASOS or Hive, the diversity and the, the makeup of the customer base is hugely, you know, it's, it's deep and wide at the same time. Um, so that's something that's definitely transferable when we're thinking about how we how we work through a problem, how we start to understand and engage with customers. We need to bear in mind that it needs to be adaptive and flexible to numbers of age ranges, abilities, knowledge. And so that's something that can transfer. I think the big difference here at Hive, you know, from probably a role perspective and a, a problem perspective is that we're not just thinking about digital. Whilst I was at ASOS and Tesco and they have services to them, the role that I played was very much in a digital space. 
So it was all around how can we make a great product experience to sell goods to customers and how do we do that on an app or website? If I look at the challenge that we face at Hive and what my team um, and the organization are building towards and we, we now look after on a daily basis, that spectrum is much larger. It's not just digital. We have lots of digital platforms that we integrate with, voice via Alexa or Google. We have you know everything from hardware, how we install that, the packaging that we we ship it in, um, how we position that in retail, how we talk about that with professional installers at BG or professional installers through Local Heroes, which is you know now part of now part of the same branding group that we work for. It's it's a much broader spectrum. So my, from a from a designer point perspective, it's gone from what at the time felt like a very wide view of how do we design for like. 11 million customers on a mobile app to now how do we design for several million customers across all these different mediums and bring together that same narrative and the same level of care across these different types of interaction it's pretty fascinating that i mean it's almost a, a microcosm of what's going on on a much larger scale i think for a lot of designers across the world who've been involved in digital or, or mobile apps as things in of themselves to now this much more complex world of, I guess, what I always think of as multi-touchpoint design, where an element of the experience that's affecting that overall user experience is as likely to be uh, you know, something which is an embedded sensor as it is something on the mobile app or something which is in the service or the support that is being received and taking that you know much broader view of where all those different elements of experience form. I mean, uh, does that change the way in which you structure your team, structure your processes to be able to have that much broader view about what might be impacting the way a customer experiences this and therefore how you need to think about the future development of the products? Yeah, I think it really influences the way that we operate. I mean, it's it's hard to draw a, com- a clear comparison. And whilst I was at um, you know, ASOS or Tesco, I wasn't in a, you know, a senior leadership position, whereas I am now. So perhaps these conversations were happening by by the folks that I was reporting into, and they were having the similar dilemmas and challenges and opportunities that we we build into. But whilst I can answer, you know, I can't answer that, I can say, say at Hive, it's, it's much bigger than just design. Design as a, as a mindset is by nature of what we're trying to achieve, having to permeate lots of different departments and so we spend a lot of time coordinating and working across different teams like marketing cx customer operations uh, interfacing into what is now a sister business which is british gas um, and field ops and trying to bring all those different elements together so i think for a long time and it was we're still very much in an early stage of that journey of transferring everything to a that place that i can i can envision in the future which is a very synergized synced up experience across all these different multiple touch points whether that's a call center an unboxing a digital or a physical interaction point it's you know having to transfer what we might wrap up and sell in industry as design thinking and how do we bring everyone else to to look at the problem in that space with with slightly fresh perspectives so it's it's the way that we've organized the team I would say it's been typically built around for the last two or so years around how we build really great digital products. We're now at that stage and maturity in a company where I'm spending a lot of time this the early part of this year, reaching out and building up a new conversation with other stakeholders and leaders around the organization to say, how do we expand what we've managed to achieve here and use that to bring everything else onto that same that same um, storyline, that same thread? You know, I'd love to check back in in a few few weeks' time 
couple of months time with you and, and, and let you know how it's going but i would say it's still for us very much at the early point but it really comes down to building relationships and how how we're going to transfer that thinking that we've done in digital design and how we can bring that across all those other areas and of course learn from our colleagues in those different departments as well to to improve what we do are you starting to get a sense of like what are your most effective levers to make those conversations go well i mean you mentioned there for instance about being able to talk to people in marketing and use some of the the outreach activities that traditionally go through the marketing department as a a way of of influencing that overall product design experience i mean in those sort of scenarios what are the things that you're finding are most useful to be able to get everyone on board with that more joined up style of thinking so i think a super high level it's it would be finding common language each each department each leader each discipline is going to have metrics kpis experiences that are going to influence how they see the world what we're trying to do is find a way that we can put the customer at the heart of the conversation no matter what that conversation is so as we've started to move away from just focusing on core product experiences and designing the applications into the work we're doing at the moment is to is to redesign the website and the email comms from ground up we then start to naturally bridge into what would have been historically perhaps more of a marketing um, aspect of the business what we had seen was that we could see you know elements that were disjointed in some cases relatively significantly and it's about visualizing that so it's a bit of how do we find common language then how do we help visualize and showcase that story of what we've seen as designers and and ensure that we haven't missed something by asking folks in marketing or, or operations to to bring their perspectives and then very much how do we bake in customer insight how do we how do we make sure that customers lead these conversations and we're not being driven by subjective or objective opinions so it's it's kind of it's that multi-tiered approach of build relationships find common language and talk about what we can all agree on that we need to build and develop which is the customer's experience well i guess it's another thing which has probably changed a bit since you were getting started in design yeah but we talked a little bit about how the technology has changed but also yeah that role for someone uh, as a designer to be the one who's sort of acting as the linchpin for those conversations is again something which I think is is fairly new and also something which seems to be building momentum quite quickly within a lot of organizations that actually it is the design team that can have that that broader view and be the one that keeps the customers central to the customer needs central to all of those different discussions which is a pretty interesting situation to be in i think uh, is it influencing the kind of people the kind of talent and skills you look to have within your own team specifically and, and how you look for them to work with other parts of the organization yeah, absolutely it is yeah we've we we were probably you know back in 2017 we were very much a a single sort of skill set design org structure and by that i mean we had people who were specifically brought in to do illustration people specifically brought in to work on visual design ux and research over the last two years we've gone through and you know, it's not by trend but by nature of understanding the scope of work reorging the team and building out uh, a new capability where we have very well-rounded designers or as commonly said t-shaped designers so we look for people that have experience and care in user experience visual design user research and ideally a little bit of strategy as well so we can we can find people who have different talents and when we set them up as a team they complement each other and over time they start to grow and develop skills off each other when you start to think about bringing user research into that conversation and how people can listen observe 
understand and I suppose critically build empathy with the end customer as a designer that makes them perhaps more readily positioned to build empathy and stronger relationships with stakeholders outside of the design org and so that that relationship element starts to naturally unfold by the nature of the interest of the people you brought into the into the team you suddenly hope so as you say all those sort of key outward facing skills that one would hope a well-rounded designer has are also things which should in theory make the the process of of building those kind of internal conversations that much easier too uh, but that that's kind of interesting as well there about how that how those kind of skills might come into play given the nature of the user research that a business like Hive will need. I mean, it strikes me just with my fairly rudimentary knowledge of the Hive product line that you've potentially got quite different types of user, not just in terms of the the demographics of the end customers who are going to have these installed in their homes, but also that to some degree, your customers are professional installers, they're they're, uh, presumably sort of integrator type organizations which are supplying some of these on your behalf as well as people who are taking this on as a home install project i mean does that does that change the way in which you approach doing that research and, and how that research is then used to inform the overall product roadmap it does it does we've we've got two critical elements to research here so we've got the designers and the product owners who spend a percentage of the time actively involved in speaking with customers and we've got a dedicated insight and user research team so the insight element of that department is focusing on understanding the larger demographics positioning market fit etc at the lower level we have the user research team they spend a lot of their time working through the product development cycles so we're bringing people into labs we're going out to their homes and interviewing them it changes the narrative quite a lot when we develop products i think we'd have that so we've we've looked high level figured out who the actors are right so we know to your point there are professional installers there are operational elements there are partners who are going to use this product and then there are various types huge diversity of end users both from a an economic perspective from an age perspective from a technology perspective as well and how comfortable they are with that tech and so what we spend a lot of our time doing is going out when we build a new product going through lots of iteration as quickly as we can with um, a very small and dedicated alpha. Then we phase into a beta community, and then what we do is we put these products out into into the into the into the world, as it were. We get you know, fifty, a hundred homes signed up, so we can understand how the technology will evolve and live across different types of houses and users. And of course, when you look at a home, that can vary dramatically. You might have a single single person um, occupancy property. You might have a young couple, an old couple. You might have a young family, a maturing family. And when you look at the, those different houses, even 50, 100, you start to see patterns. But of course, you start to see real diversity and needs as well. And it's it's that ability to not just look you know, from an analytical perspective or from a labs perspective, but to really get out into these houses, to get into the homes and to connect with customers, see their frustrations, see the things that they, they are delighted by that have made it possible for us to build products that connect with you know, the one plus million customers that we have. And I think we're in something like 1.8 million homes around the world at the moment, primarily the UK. Um, It's made that possible because we've invested in understanding not just how the product functions or how people understand a digital interaction in a lab environment, but how multiple actors in the same home will interface with it. What are the the main metrics that you're using to measure the success of of your team? I think it, it depends by channel. So if we're looking at the digital... Um, transformation programs that we're running at the moment it's all around 
how do we evolve uh, and drive engagement and conversion um, through our .com. But from a product perspective, uh, it, it changes again. For, for us, it's around how and what type of information and feedback are we getting from customers? And that might be at a qual or a quant level. What are they looking for? How do they respond to the designs? But I think there's also a really interesting element outside of just the, you know, what are we looking for externally? One of the things that I've been really in- interested in over the last couple of years is how do we change the profile of the design team to help positively influence and inspire change around the rest rest of the organization? And so for me, it's kind of in twofold. There's a, there's a huge category around building great customer experiences, and then those KPIs flex dependent on the channel um, and what we're trying to achieve, whether it's customer sentiment improvements or if we're looking for hard metrics like growth or conversion. But then the other part for me, which I've, I've loved seeing and I'd love developing at the moment with my team, is how do we change um, the parameters of what design means to the organization? How does it affect how we operate? How does it change the workflow? How do we ensure that customers have a really strong voice at the table and we're balancing that element of business desire, of course, to grow and make more money, but how do we do that in a way that is always benefited to the customer? So for me, it's, it's, it's kind of very much in twofold. One of the things that we've, well, I say one of the things, we've used three foundational elements to measure how the team has impacted the wider business. And that's come down to people. How are we building relationships and growing skill sets, not just within our team, but how are we helping others to grow? Principles. So what makes what is the North Star or the North Stars that we're building towards and we can measure ourselves against and we can help the wider community understand? And then that process element, how do we improve the operational aspects of design to help reduce cost and friction and time to deliver work for other teams across technology, marketing or product? Have you found that as a challenge for you personally, You know, particularly on, on that latter part that you're alluding to there about the wider role of the design organization within the, the company as a, a whole? Is that something where you've had to develop those skills in yourself? I mean, I came into Hive going from, you know, from my, from my last role to come in here to do a practitioner role. I, 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 I dabbled on and off for, for just over a year or so in a in a leadership position in my previous company i had some successes and honestly some failures there i was i came into the company at the point that i was getting married we just bought a house or a wife and i and i wanted to 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 take the stress off of what i'd experienced and and focus on developing out my my technical skills i suppose what i found myself um, falling into over the first couple of months here was an opportunity to help the team there were some areas that we needed to develop in. And by nature, I ended up falling into a role where I wasn't given any official authority, but I was given the opportunity to help um, drive change. And it, there seemed to me to be an opportunity for design to, to improve as a culture, to improve as an operational element of the organization, and then a huge opportunity to make big gains to the customer experience. So I hadn't come into the, with the organization to do the job that I do now. I hadn't come in with a strategy or plan but yes, in a, in a way, I had I have taken learnings, observations, um, and ideas from other roles to help shape out where we were. But what I wanted to try and do when I, when I when I moved into this position was for it very much not to be just my vision. I'd seen a lot of leaders in the past and experience being part of teams where there was one person sat at the top who would describe and in some cases dictate the vision of where we wanted to do, to go. The way that I felt was the right way to do that was for the community itself to help shape out the direction of who we wanted to be, define why we were here, and together define what we would do to get there. 
So it wasn't wasn't so much my vision. I had an idea as the opportunity revealed itself, but it very much came from the people and the team. And it was giving them a forum in which we could we could do that. I think was probably my biggest contribution. Less so I had a grand vision when I when I first joined Hive. Those are some pretty strong foundations to have laid. And one of the things that I've discovered about communities over the years, for instance, with some of the things that we've done with Mex, is that that they need to be exactly that at heart. That unless there's a sense of involvement from everyone who's in that community, not just in participating in it, but also in defining how that community should operate and feel and what it should be striving to achieve, that's one of the strongest ways in which you can ensure the longevity of that kind of community. And it sounds like that's something which is is occurring within what you're doing at Hive. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the big programs we started with actually named Honey, which is essentially a design system and a way of working for the design design org, was the intention when I was asked to, to come in and I was given the project was for me to go off into a room and design that in isolation and then come back and explain to the rest of the organization what we were going to do. Now, if I was honest with you, I had tried that approach several years before and found found out pretty quickly that was not the right thing to do. And so it was it was very clear that the opportunity here for us was not only to build a good design system or you know a successful operating model, but to get there by focusing very much on the relationships and the people who were going to hopefully be here for the next three, five plus years. And that thread is something we've continued through. I mean, I'm into year three here now, and the shape of the team has changed little. But what has remained true um, throughout that journey has been the intention of we are here to do this thing together. And, you know, whilst I spearhead the team, it's very much our vision for what we believe the customer needs to get to. And then it's about communicating, bringing other elements into into that around the organization. But I guess the critical part as well is, you know, it's it's throughout it, it's people. I would say at Hive, we are very much a, a people-driven organization. And that's both true of how we're looking at how we operate and hire and maintain and grow our talent, as well as how how we look at developing products and services for the end user. If you think about those those products and services and where they might be going in the next generation, is there a particular area of the kind of technologies that you're working with at the moment where you feel the most amount of change is going to happen or, or that is exciting you most personally? Um, again, I, I suppose going back a little bit to the fact that it is such a multi-touch point overall experience that you're designing here i presume there are quite a few different areas that you're trying to keep track of and trying to understand all of those different emerging technologies and how they might influence things but is there there one which is particularly getting you going at the moment yeah like you said there's a huge there's a huge um selection of of diversity within our portfolio that we are developing over the next well next several years i think the area that perhaps is most inspiring for a lot of the team and probably has the opportunity to have some of the largest impact on society um, and the environment is developing into renewable technologies. And it's not just happening at Hive, but as we look to sister companies like BG and others within the group Centrica that we're part of, is we're very much working towards a clear mission of becoming a, a carbon neutral organization. And so over the coming years, we are starting, and we already have done for for. For, for a number of years in, in certain pockets, started to understand how we can find and invest in renewable technologies. And then how do we develop services and products around those that are viable and can be deployed into market? 
whilst we're still very much, I would say, at the beginning of that journey, I think we will see within the next five, 10 years, a significant gear change to what Centricare's whole group is doing to move towards not just a smart home in a sense that it's automated around your needs, but it's smarter for you financially and f- smarter for the planet. And I think it's it's that intention and vision that we are going after, not just heating or lighting or security in the sense of our cameras, but we're also going after how do we make these big changes so we can reduce energy waste and how can we positively affect the planet as we move forward. Do you find that a strong personal motivator yourself, the fact that this is something that does potentially work towards having that that environmental impact absolutely it's it's a it's i wouldn't say it's definitely the main motive but it's certainly up there i mean i I love i love what hive does today um, and what the group is working towards right now but if i look towards you know where we will be in 2030 how and how quickly we can move that needle towards that you know that that milestone it's hugely benefit we've got we've got to make change on the planet there is no doubt around it it's difficult there's a lot of a lot of infrastructure that needs to change, a huge amount of investment that is required. But the bottom line is, in society, we need to really flip how we are consuming energy and reduce the amount of waste that we have. And one of the you know amazing things about the company I'm in, when I joined, my interpretation of where we were going to be was, we are making the home smarter through automated technologies. Two and a bit years into that, it's revealed itself to me that we are now on a much bigger stage to make this huge, you know, to help drive this huge change that in effect can help keep our planet green and healthy for you know hundreds of thousands of years to come. So yeah, it's it's, it's hugely inspiring for sure. What might change for for me as an end customer? You know, as we move towards that more sustainable energy mix. I mean, I guess when I think about some of the changes that are sort of likely to happen for a customer like me personally, I can imagine that certainly some of the main devices or, or users of energy within my life might change. I mean, particularly here about transport, I suppose, that it may well be that one of my largest consumers of energy in the home in the future will be the car sitting in the driveway in terms of uh, at least electrical energy, if, if there's a widespread move to electrical cars, but also that the supply sources for that energy might change quite a bit too, that there might be more solar in the mix there might be more in the way of ground source or air source being done at a a local level and i'm just wondering you know how those changes are sort of likely to to manifest and affect the kind of work that that you're doing and how that might change some of those touch points which people are familiar with 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 hive at the moment and whether you're starting to think about how that that might evolve and how that that different mix of both energy source and energy usage might be reflected in, in future products? The short answer is absolutely we are. I think the, probably the question for me is how much I can talk about right now. I can say high level, what we, the challenges that we face are probably how do we find technologies that we can position and that are affordable for the households that make a meaningful impact to that vision that we have of you know getting towards a carbon neutral future. I think in terms of the interaction, which is really the space that I play in, how do we make that human interaction between technology and the services and the systems for work effectively? I think my honest my honest perspective on this, I don't think it dramatically changes. I think how how we generate energy will significantly change, whether that's stored through, say, power walls, if we've got more solar panels, uh, if we go for localized versus the grid uh, as a way to generate and maintain technology. But I imagine how we interact with it won't be significantly different from what we have today. My hope is that technology will allow us to 
automate a lot of the elements that we've done thus far through manual control and scheduled control. And as we can develop out richer and smarter algorithms, that AI can take a lot of that stress away from the customer. So we get very much into that space potentially of you know, the invisible UI. And we're starting to see, you know, build towards that with voice in some shape or form. But I, I think the way that we perceive, at least for the next 10, 20 plus years, um, actually, I, I need to turn something up or down because I feel cold or because I'm hot, because it's dark and I want it to be lighter. The interactions may tweak a little bit, but I think the way that we look at that will take a number of decades probably to change. Um, I'd love to dive into a little bit more of the technologies themselves, but uh, perhaps one we can pick up at a later date. Yeah, for sure. Um, we wouldn't expect you to spill the, the secret sauce on the, the podcast, but it, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting how that actually sort of translates into the the, the product design and, and interaction work that, that you might be doing, and that um, how those things will be accommodated in the future. You, you mentioned there a bit about the. Uh, the control and the scheduling of different elements of, of the home. And one of the things that I've always admired about Hive is that it seems to be a fairly well interconnected device with other services that people might want to include within that network or, or use to schedule some of those actions. I'm thinking here about things like IFTTT and uh, the, the way in which you can build those sort of wider integrations with all of the different smart appliances out there. But I'm wondering if that makes your challenge harder as a, a designer with a responsibility for sort of overall experience within the Hive product, at least, that once you start interconnecting with those different wider networks, you then start to find that there are elements of the experience which are sort of outside of your control and yet are still seen by the customer as being part of an experience that, that you're delivering and, and whether there are ways to, to resolve that kind of tension. I'm not so sure we're concerned whether there is a tension. I mean, for a number of years, we've been working with IFTT to develop those those interactions. Whilst we've got our own framework that we actually call actions to create these automation layers i think the richer partnerships that we have are probably with the voice integrations for control so alexa and google you may argue from a brand perspective that does that get misconstrued that hive has now become part of google or a part of the amazon portfolio and for for us i think it's very much that they are a partnership that makes the technologies that we are developing a richer and more diverse and more fit for purpose for a bigger bigger audience type. Do you ever get surprised by the creativity that people are applying to sort of chaining together those different interactions, you know, linking it into their Echo or their Siri shortcuts or plugging it into uh, to, to other things via those those integration services? Yeah, abs- absolutely. We do. We see a, a real mixture of how people use those. Obviously, we, we put a lot of time and thought into understanding the potential options to try and take the load out of users having to build something from scratch. But I think the most revealing heartwarming stories that I've seen are where perhaps we have not necessarily understood some of the severities and struggles that individual customers have with us or have in, in life, sorry. I mean, one of the most heartwarming stories that I, I have seen is uh, a family and the mother of this family um, suffers with uh, with MS. And and for her, you know, literally getting up at a certain point of the day can can be exhausting. There's an element where it starts to feel uncomfortable um, for her to, to get up and hit the light switch or to walk over to a thermostat. And what Hive has enabled is the physical technologies to change light and to heating. And, you know, if she wanted, she could do that through the phone or through a watch. But the partnership with Alexa 
has enabled her to talk and interface to our technologies in a way that's completely comfortable for her. So I'm surprised, not necessarily by the creativity, perhaps, of the customers, but by the stories that reveal themselves through these technologies that I think we, you know, in some ways for our shame in the design and product space, maybe within technology, don't we get excited and drawn to the technology, right? The opportunity of what this could and what it might be. But sometimes I feel we have this tendency to look past the human layer, which is, of course, our main role is to understand humanity, um, to empathize with it, to build for the diversity of it. And, and those, those, those levels of creativity in a sense of we had never, I, I had never anticipated that, certainly before I joined the company. And then for that story to reveal itself um, was very humbling and, and really inspiring for us as a team. I guess that's the, the beauty of user research at its most powerful is when you're able to tap into those unexpected examples like that, that, that are outside of your own experience or expectations, and then find a way to appreciate how they could benefit other parts of the user base and, and make allowances and, and find ways to to expand those kind of technologies or those techniques out. I mean, that's the the heart of it, really, I suppose, at what you're trying to do with user-centered design. Exactly, exactly that. I mean, there are other elements, of course, where we find our technology is creating frustration. But it, it, I think that's the great influence, sorry, the great possibility of design is for us as as designers, as people within the product, the tech community, for us to look beyond data, beyond the analytics. One of the things I love particularly about Hive is that we're not just doing testing within, you know, on a desktop and we're doing multivariant testing or AB or we're running a lab. We're getting into people's homes and it's in it's in those activities that you really start to build a sense of who our customers truly are and you start to see these, you know, truly beautiful and inspiring stories. The great thing as well is they reveal frustrations to us, which is rich opportunity. Um, and when we can when we can communicate these individual moments, these individual stories, the real lives of people to the wider organization, it allows us not to just commit ourselves to delivering something from a financial or growth perspective, but for us to deliver it through a sense of social good, for a sense of building something truly better for for the world yeah i mean that's got to be a, a pretty inspiring motivator to get you up in the morning and into the office to to carry on working on these things uh, there was one other thing i wanted to ask you before we finish up ashton and i'm curious i don't know quite what time frame to set this in but something that sounds pretty far into the future so let's say maybe a, another 10 years into the future what's the one thing in your own home that you wish you had better control over or some automated control over that is not yet possible, but that you're hoping might become possible in the next 10 years or so? The, the great thing about where we are today in 2020, there is so, so much happening already. I think if I wanted to make something, you know, happen today, I, I could probably do it. But what I would love to see, you know, ideally within the less, less than five years, is that, you know, as we move towards this carbon neutral future and we start to think about how we can better create, generate and store energy, energy itself becoming automated. There is definitely, you know, throughout the day, a peak time in where we all get home from work on average window and, you know, ovens go on, washing machines go on, TVs go on. And there's a, a, there's a strain and there's a pressure on the grid that we have today. What I'm quite excited about is leveraging data science machine learning and you know ultimately ai technologies to automate how we consume electricity so 
we don't have to use so much and create so much strain. And therefore, of course, we should theoretically get slightly cheaper energy, but we should be able to use energy in a more sustainable way. So that for me is a really interesting space. Yeah, it sounds promising. I'm very much hoping that comes to pass myself as well. Um, well, best of luck with everything with the, the team at Hive and do stay in touch and keep us all posted in the Mex community on, on how it's going. It's been great to have the chance to catch up today, but we'd love to hear more about it in the future as well. Uh, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Marek. I found that a really interesting one. I think there's something about those user experiences which touch us at an emotive level. Uh, I mean, for me, at least, the home and heat and comfort is pretty deep down there at the, the emotional level. And it amplifies the design challenge, uh, not least because you know, it also plays into that wider theme of how society can tackle the really big issues of our time, you know, how we're going to live comfortably but within the means that the earth provides us and, and within the balance that this planet needs. So I think this is the bit where I'm supposed to tell you to like and subscribe and all those magical mechanisms that are supposed to help podcasts grow. And obviously those things all help. But to be honest, if you're enjoying the shows and you want to support them, uh, there are two things which I think are, are best of all. And the first is just send it to people. Have a think about who you might know who you think would enjoy listening and just send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com by good old fashioned email or, or message or whatever. In my experience, it's those personal intros which are the best way to get new people listening and involved in all of the fun things that happen in our MEX community. And that link there, mobileuserexperience.com and the podcast section, is also where you'll find the show notes for all of these episodes, including this one just recorded with Ashton, where there are links to everything that we talked about in case you want to follow up on any of those references. Now, the other thing which is really helpful is feedback. Yeah, there's nothing more useful or frankly more enjoyable for me uh, than hearing from you direct about what you think of the show uh, or someone or something you think I should cover in the future. And again, an email here is is golden. Just drop me a line, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. And I do read and respond to, to all of those that I receive. Uh, and it would be great to hear from you. I'm going to be back soon with another episode. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.